0: Good morning church. Morning church. My name's Jerry if you haven't met me before. And I was just thinking about yeah, what was something for me that has been really that I've done in the past that has been extreme and radical. And I guess over the last 6 months I've had to apologize to someone and realizing at the start of my semester that I had wronged this person in conversation Something really extreme came to me, and I was like, hey, well, if I'm a believer of Jesus and motivated by God's love for me on the cross, maybe I should apologize to someone. So, yeah, that was my time that I actually, yeah, did something extreme and radical. And it was scary, and it didn't really end the way that I wanted to, but I'm quite thankful that God is working behind the scenes. Cool. Anyways... I'll be reading Acts 4, chapter, th- chapter 4, verse 32 to chap- chapter 5, verse 11. So, f- so f- feel free to open with me to Acts chapter 4, verse 32 to chapter 5, verse 11. Starting from verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. Whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of the son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now a man, Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, How could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who had heard about these events. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, keep your Bibles open, please. It's a confronting passage, isn't it? But we'll dig in, because God's Word has something to say to us today. So keep your Bibles open. If you don't have a Bible with you, then um, please, uh, you know, you can just listen along, or maybe the person next to you can share the Bible with you. Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing? Uh, we love for you to bring Bibles along, because we're all about God's Word here at CP and looking into what God's Word has to say to us. Now, um, we talk a lot about... Balance in life, don't we? Balance is that something we talk about a lot? Um, particularly, we talk about this uh, work life balance. Have you ever thought about what a funny term that is? Work life balance, as on one hand, you have work, and the other hand, you have life. (laughs) Like, what a contrast is that? There's like no contest between work is so much, uh, so different, so negative, perhaps, or maybe different. I'll say that it's not even a part of life, it's something completely separate. And when people talk about work-life balance, what do they mean? They mean that you have to work hard, obviously, you've got to earn your money, support your family, things like that, but you can't work too hard, okay? Don't work too hard, otherwise you're going to burn yourself out, that's no good for you. Um, And then the life balance is that you have to actually invest in family, you have to have social time, you have to relax, um, but you can't do that too much, otherwise that's just being lazy, you can't support your life, your family, you won't bring in any money. You need a good balance between those two things. Especially here in Australia, work life balance is really important. Maybe, um, I know my wife is Singaporean. I know in Singapore, work life balance is maybe very skewed towards the work side of things. Um, but we all see that that's a good thing. Having a bit of balance in life, you can't have too much of one thing. You need to have a balanced life. And maybe, um, and, you know, even when it comes to the Christian life, you think about that, you think about balance. I remember when I was younger and I was going through YF, which is the uni ministry here, I used to look at the leaders, and you know what I used to say? I used to say, these guys are way too hardcore. Look how hardcore. And I used to say to my friend, just, can you promise me we'll never be like that? <laughs> We're both now pastors, so just to let you guys know. <laughs> um, but you look at that because you're like, you don't, you don't want to be too serious, right? Like, you don't, that's, you know, that's, you, you can sort of be in the middle, You need a bit of balance in life. But here's here's the question to ask you Is that the picture that the scriptures give us of the Christian life? Is that the picture that the scriptures give us of what it means to be God's church? I want to suggest to you today that the picture of God's people, God's church, is not actually really a balanced picture in one sense from scriptures. It's actually quite extreme. In fact, it's radical. It's And when I say that, it means it's completely different from anything else we've seen. Today, we're going to look at two characteristics that the gospel brings about in God's people. And that's radical care and radical holiness. If you're new here, uh, welcome to you. It's fantastic to see you, especially if you're coming for our lunch. We're uh, so glad to welcome you. Uh, The things we'll see today, I'm going to tell you, some are very confronting, but I hope you actually see it is a beautiful and good picture of God's church. And I hope that is something you see today as well. So keep your Bibles open and let's get stuck in. To give you a bit of context, the book of Acts is a book about the early church. And Jesus Christ has just returned to heaven and he's given a mission for his church to just bring this message out that salvation is available for all who would come to Jesus. Um, what's happened just recently is two of Jesus' followers, Peter and John, two of the leaders of the early church, they're arrested for preaching the gospel. They get taken before a court and the council there say, you have to stop telling people about Jesus. And they say, we can't. We literally cannot do that. We need to keep going. And they continue to, so they're released eventually and they pray for boldness. The Holy Spirit empowers the church to keep speaking boldly. And we're already seeing a picture of a radical church here, aren't we? A church that's a radical emission that boldly speaks the gospel in the face even of persecution, even being thrown in jail. This is a radical approach to mission. But in this passage, we're going to start with our first point here, and we're going to look at radical care that's in the church. So Acts 4, have a look at verse 32 with me. In your Bibles, follow along with me. If you don't have your Bible, then just listen along. Verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. Now, the first thing to note in verse 32, if you look at that, is this term, that they're all one in heart and mind, one in heart and mind. And this is a picture of incredible unity, incredible unity. One of the most common pictures in the Bible of the church is a body. And the way that a body works is the body is made up of many different parts, many different members, as the scriptures often puts it, uh, all who, who are different. They all have different functions, you think about your body, but you... The body all works together for the common good. Without the other parts, the body can't function. And here we see a picture of the early church united, one body, working together as one, not just in mission, but in mutual care. Verse 32, the second half says "There's No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. Wow. Isn't this a radical way of viewing community, that instead of saying, this is mine and this is yours, that you're saying, what's mine is yours. Whatever I have, I share with you. Um, This is a concept I try to instill in my children often, and it doesn't work. (laughs) But this is a radical community, because think about this. Where do you see this? Where do you see this in society? You don't really see it, because we live in an individualistic Western society that elevates self and the needs of yourself above all things. If, you, if you're honest with yourself, you think about the communities that you're a part of, and most, more often than not, you join these communities from what you can get out of them, not what you can give. When I was much younger, I was the vice president of a student social group on UQ, at UQ, called BSA, the Borneo Students' Association. No one even knows where Borneo is. I actually am from Borneo, okay? It's sort of East Malaysia, Indonesia, just to give you guys a bit of a lesson there. But people just joined that society anyway. They weren't from Borneo, but they didn't join it to be proud of Borneo. They joined it for their self-gratification. It was a a club just literally based on fun. And we used to run these events called All You Can Eat Yum Cha. Has everyone been to All You Can Eat Yum Cha? Hands up. Yeah, Ben, I know you've been. Hands up, mate. Yeah. (laughs) Or You Can Eat Yamcha, let me tell you, that event was all about self-gratification, <laughs> unashamedly. Um, it used to cost the club thousands of dollars, literally, um, because it, you paid maybe $7 to go, and yes, we were bankrupt by the end of it, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> no one came to or You Can Eat Yamcha saying, thinking to themselves, how can I contribute to this community here, <laughs> right? They came to consume, And in one sense, rightfully so, right? It's all you can eat, yum cha. I mean, what else should I be expecting? But in one sense, I say this because the consumer mentality is how we think about communities, right? Even if it's not something as explicit as this. Think of all the things you've joined, the clubs, the loyalty programs, the things you've joined. It's for you, isn't it? It's for you. And sometimes we bring that consumer mentality even into our church. But here in the early church, we see something radical, We see a community not based on getting, but on giving. Verse 34, let me read it again. There were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to everyone, to anyone who had need. This is radical generosity. Think about it. if you own a house, let me tell you, if you own a house or land, uh, even in our midst out, you're incredibly rich. Let me just tell you that, yeah? Especially now, the norm for house prices, I don't even know where. you know, $1 million is not unusual, you know, for a house nowadays with uh, quite a few rooms with all these prices. But back then, this was even more so the case. Um, only 10% of people had a house or land. This was the upper echelon of people, These upper middle class members of the Christian community that were rich, they were actually willing to sell their land, their houses. And they gave the money to the community. This was a big sacrifice. Think about it, you know? $500,000, here you go, apostles. One million, here you go, apostles, use that. Maybe multiple investment properties. Two, three million, yeah, this is for the community. Help those who are in need. The early church undoubtedly was filled with needy people. You think about Jesus' ministry to the poor, to the down and out. The apostles just you know, brought in a lame beggar into the community. But because of the generosity from those who had much, what does it say? There was not one needy person. What a beautiful picture. But I want you to note something important, why this is happening. Why is it happening? Look at what is at the center of this passage, sandwiched in between the two descriptions of radical generosity that we just looked at. Did did you see it in um, uh, verse 3? I think it's verse 3. 33, sorry. Yeah, my mistake. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all. Here's the reason. This is right in the middle of the two descriptions of the, uh, the, the generosity of the church that we looked at before. Right in the middle of it, it's a gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the risen Lord Jesus Christ. This is what produces the radical unity in the church. This is what produces radical care, radical generosity. This is the message that the, the apostles they actually can't shut up about, that even being arrested hasn't stopped them from talking about. The fact that Jesus Christ has died to forgive sins, that he's risen to defeat death, and that now he offers life to all who would come to him, repent and believe. This is the message that is at the heart of the Christian community here, the first church here in the book of Acts. And the selfless, radical care of one another in this community is just as much a fruit of the gospel as mission is. Did you notice that? And I don't think this is something exclusive to the early church because this is something Jesus cares about for all his people. Let me ask you a question. Um, what did Jesus say was the distinguishing mark of Christian community? What To be the distinguishing mark of the Christian community. Do you, do you guys know? Love. Love. John 13, 34, 35 says this. Have a look on the, on the screen. Jesus speaking to his apostles just before he went to the cross. A new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Have you ever thought about this? That out of all the things that Jesus Christ could have picked as the distinguishing mark of the church, he actually picked love? He didn't actually say This is how people will know that you're my disciples if you give 10% of your money to church every week. This is how they will know if you actually um, share the gospel with 10 people this week. He He didn't say that. The characteristic he chose to set Christian community apart is love. It's love. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And this is talk, if, when, when it talks about one another, it's talking about the Christian community, the church, the care and love and compassion that Christians show one another. This is a radical, selfless, servant-hearted love that only Christians have because it can only come by the power of the gospel changing our selfish hearts to actually follow the example of our king. Verse 34, and new command, I give you, love one another as I have loved you. Jesus love. Motivates us, is our example. We love because, because Jesus first loved us. And do you know how Jesus loved us? He gave everything for us. He gave us life so that us, the neediest people, hopeless in our sin, could have new life. He sacrifices it all on the cross for us, the lost, the hopeless, the broken, His love. Now, let me tell you about Jesus' love. It's it's a generous love. This is a love that's costly. This is a love that hurts. This is real love. And that's what we are called to as His church today. It's radical love, shown in radical care for one another. Uh, did you know that in the New Testament, the term one another appears 47 times referring to the church. Here's some examples on the screen. You know, carry one another's burden, serve one another, submit to one another, teach one encourage one another, build one another up, be devoted to one another, honour one another, accept one another, have equal concern with one another, be kind and compassionate to one another, in humility value one another, one another, one another, one another, one another. And the reason it comes up so much is because the church is so important. One another, we are important. As we gather, we're to have a one another mindset. We come to ask, who can I help? Who can I serve? What can I do to care for others? We have to remember, it's not about me. It's not about me. And let me tell you, church, I've been encouraged because I've seen this in action. I've seen this in action this year. And we've had people uh, for our church camp in financial need who, you know, expressed that they couldn't come along because of financial, um, yeah, just not enough finances. And people generously stepped up in our congregation to provide for those needs. And everybody came, that wanted to come could come along. That's a beautiful, generous picture of our community giving to others. That's beautiful. Thank you, yeah, if you participate in that. I've seen it as people have cooked meals for one another when sickness hits or a new baby arrives. Uh, the meal rosters that just pop up, and um, especially other busy mums giving their time to actually serve other others. That's incredible. That's being the church. I've seen it as people have gathered around others who have been struggling with mental health, just being there for them, being, being friends, you know, just sat and talked with them, people within the church community. That's the church. And as you give to church generously, just to let you know too, we use that to help care for others, just like the church in Acts laid their money at the feet of the apostles, entrusting them to meet the needs of the community, your giving enables us to help others, uh, to send people gifts to comfort them in times of hardship, to subsidise mental health care for those who are struggling with that. Care initiatives we're able to do because you guys give generously to the church. And friends, as a church, I think we are doing this. But I just urge you to keep going. Yeah? Keep going. Yeah, let's keep caring for one another. We need, we need one another, all right? That's an important thing to note. Maybe you've been challenged today to be a bit more radical in your care. I don't think this passage is particularly saying to us um, that we all need to sell our property and give everything we have to the church. But I think the question that's raising for us is, would you be willing to do that if there was the need? Maybe the Spirit is convicting you today to give radically. To actually start giving till it hurts, and I'm not just talking about financial. Of course, there's a financial need here. We're still forty thousand dollars behind on our giving, um, and that does impact our ability to minister um, the gospel to one another. But I'm I'm talking bigger. I'm talking about your life. You know, maybe you can challenge a bit by the Spirit today to give more of your time, your talent, your treasure towards the church community. We are called to radical generosity. Radical. It means it's unusual. It stands out as we seek to radically care for one another. That's what we're called to. Now, I want to say something important here. Um, Not everyone is in a place to be generous at the moment in the way that you care for others. Uh, Whether it's finances, time, serving, and Jesus knows that. That's fine. That's fine. Uh, Maybe you are actually someone who needs help right now. And I would urge you, to ask for help. Yeah. We can't help if we don't know. Yeah. Don't let shame hold you back. Don't let the worry of causing problems for others hold you back. The church community, Jesus redeemed to help one another. So I'd urge you, please, share with someone today your needs, if you have needs. Share with your life group if you're in a life group. Share with a staff team member. Uh, write it down on the connect cards later on so we know and we can take a step towards helping you. That's the first step to getting help, friends. The gospel, it produces a radical church, doesn't it? It's radical. The first thing is a radical care, but it also produces this radical holiness, radical holiness. Chapter 4 finishes with a story of incredible generosity. Acts 4, 36. Read 36, verse 36 with me. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, what a great name, son of encouragement, uh, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, this, uh, the chapter ends with the story, and it actually uh, ends here to give us an example of that radical care, but also it ends here to give us a contrast for what's to come. And man, because what happens next um, in chapter five, is a man named Ananias and his wife, Sapphira, they see Barnabas selling his land, doing this thing, and they see that they want to do the same thing. With one crucial difference, instead of giving everything that they uh, got from the cell to the apostles, they just gave a part of it, but they pretended that, yes, this is all of it. Here we go. They kept part some of the money for themselves. They're dishonest. Now, why would they do this? Undoubtedly, they've seen Barnabas, and um, perhaps they've seen the praise and affirmation he's getting from others, like, oh, Barnabas is so generous, and they're like, oh, we'd like a bit of that. They desire this, but they don't want to pay the cost. They think they can deceive everyone. But God gives the Apostle Peter insight into their hearts. As Ananias comes and he lays the money at the feet of the Apostle Peter, um, he says this, Acts 5, verse 3. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. And I just want to point point out two things here. Firstly, about this deception of Ananias, this pretending to give everything that he had, pretending to be generous, but actually holding some back for himself. Uh, The first point is this uh, the church is not perfect. The church is not perfect. Some people reckon that the Apostle Luke, um, actually, uh, that when when Luke actually wrote this, that um, he was just, uh, the book of Acts, sorry, that he was giving a really glorious picture of the church, like, oh, look how great the church is, preaching the gospel everywhere and doing this amazing stuff. But um, you'll see here that he's not afraid to show the bad side of the church, is he? If I was Luke, I'd probably just maybe cut this bit out, just like put that on the editing room floor. But he's giving a true picture of the church, yeah? He doesn't shy away from telling us that the church is imperfect. It is a broken place, even in these glorious first days of the early church. It's imperfect because it is filled with imperfect people. Forgiven imperfect people, but imperfect people nonetheless. This actually helps my confidence that Luke is an accurate historical account as well, because, you know, I would have just left this out, but he's telling things as it happened. He's saying this sin is still present in the church. People still do wicked things, And unfortunately, that will be the case until Jesus Christ returns and brings us home and perfects his people, redeems us finally, makes us perfect. So friends, I'd urge you to have the right expectations of this community here. On one hand, we should expect better of the church, right? Because Jesus Christ calls us to something better and he actually gives us his spirit to enable us to live in a way which is different. But on the other hand, we shouldn't be surprised when sin still confronts us in the church, we are still works in progress. So we need to be gracious to one another. That's the first quick thing to note. The second thing is this, that sin leads to more sin. You'll notice here Ananias and Sapphira, uh, they started perhaps um, with just some, you know, maybe some jealousy in their hearts. Uh, the, Bible, the scriptures uh, talk a little bit of, uh, or quite a lot, I shouldn't say, a little bit about envy, envy and covetousness as being something serious. They had a selfish desire to want praise and recognition as a sin of that heart, but that sinful desire gave birth to more serious sin in action as well. The problem here wasn't that they kept the money. Let's be clear. Peter actually said to them, you could have done with the money what you wanted. Wasn't it yours before it started? You know, And didn't it remain yours after you sold it? You could have done what you wanted. The problem here is that they lied. They lied. Acts 5 verse 3 says this, then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit? And also in verse 4, it says, You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. Lying, dishonesty, it's very clear. And this is really serious because they've lied to the church, but ultimately they are lying to God. What started as perhaps a small envious desire because they let it take root? And give birth to action resulted in serious sin. Friends, is that a warning for some of us today? To, that maybe we sense uh, a, a desire in our hearts starting to take root? Do we need to just cut it off before it gets worse? If that's the case, ask someone for help. If you're feeling, sensing that ungodly desire in your heart, and pray for God's help. Now, friends, what happens next in the account after Peter's announcement is shocking, very shocking. Verse 5, Acts 5, verse 5, read it with me. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died, and great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Ananias, he falls down dead. Three three hours later, Sapphira, his wife, comes in. Peter gives her an opportunity to tell the truth as well, but she lies So Peter declares this, verse 9. Have a look at verse 9 with me. How could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they'll carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. And once again... There's an instant judgment for sin, for this lie. Now, let me just acknowledge something. This passage is very difficult. It's a difficult passage. If you're new here today, you're probably thinking, what on earth have I gotten myself into by coming to church today and hearing this? But I want to say something. We shouldn't be scared of God's word to engage with what's happening here. We need to be confident that this piece of God's word, this scripture is here for a reason. Right, it's here for a purpose. So what is it? I think it's to remind us of this, that radical holiness really matters to God. Radical holiness really matters to God. Radical in that it's not normal. It's, it's extreme in one sense. Holiness really matters. Sin, sin is not something to be taken lightly in God's church. We are to be holy because he is holy, And because God is holy and good and just, he needs to judge sin. Just like a good, just judge can't just sweep crimes under the carpet in our society. We wouldn't say that's a good judge. God can't do that. He is the perfect judge. And what we see here in Acts is sin. And we see instant judgment for sin. And I don't think it's trying to say that this is the norm to be expected. It happens at a uniquely sensitive time in the history of the church Think about it. If the situation, think about wasn't dealt with immediately, a standard would have been set for the church. That went something like this. That actually sin, it isn't that serious. You can lie to one another here. You can deceive one another. It's okay. Don't worry about it, guys. Dishonesty, no problems. As long as you're on mission sharing the gospel, sin's okay, guys. That would have been the standard set for the early church. But that's not what God wants for his precious church. He wanted with clarity to show that sin is serious and radical holiness is our call. So what does that mean for us? Right. Our final point, radical implications. Uh, Let me take you back to two verses. So um, Acts 5 verse 5, let me read verse 5 to you. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died... And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. In verse 11, look at verse 11. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. You'll see what's pointed out here is the response is great fear. What does this mean? Does this mean that we need to be scared of God? Well, yes and no. Firstly, yes. Fear God. God is utterly holy, utterly powerful, and he will judge. When we forget this, and so often we do, what happens? We see God wrongly, and our lives are not the way that aren't lived in a way that honors him. Too often, we treat God casually, just like a mate, you know, a good mate who just let anything go. But here's the thing, if you have a casual view of God, you'll have a casual view of sin. Friends, we must take our sin seriously. It matters because God is holy. How seriously are you taking your sin? Perhaps like Ananias and Sapphira, you're living a lie. You look good on the outside. People might even praise you that you're such a wonderful, good person. But you know deep down your heart is greedy, it's selfish, it's unloving. Even the good things you do, they're not motivated by the right things. Friends, if that's you, don't ignore this. I plead with you, please, take that sin seriously because it really matters to God. Which means take radical steps you need that, that you need to get help. Confess your sin to a trusted brother or sister in Christ. Ask someone for accountability. Flee from situations that tempt you to sin. Just flee from them. Get it. Do whatever it takes. Or maybe you've seen others in the church being tempted into sin. Have a hard conversation with them. Jane uh, just did a workshop uh, Talk out more than Ruby's about this, having hard conversations. Don't just let them slide because it's about sin. And sin matters. Sin matters to God because radical holiness really matters to God. Friends, those steps, those, those things are so important. But let me tell you, they aren't the most important thing. Because the solution is not to simply try harder to be a good person. Trust me, I've tried that and I've failed multiple times. The only hope that we have is to come humble ourselves and bow before Jesus Christ, our King, and ask for his help. And he will give it to you. Friends, This is a story of shocking judgment. But it's also a reminder that we have shocking grace offered to us. Because we actually all deserve judgment, don't we? We look at Ananias' fear and we're like, oh, look at these rat bags. How could they do something like that? But don't we deserve judgment as well? If God actually dealt with me as I deserve, I wouldn't be standing here right now, would I? I would be being carried out the door to be buried, just like these guys. Because I am an immense sinner. I know that in my heart. But what does God give us? Instead, instead of instant judgment, God offers us a gift. That's what grace means. It's a gift. And his gift is this. Patient forgiveness. Patient forgiveness. Jesus has died on the cross and he's risen victorious. This is what they were preaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So that it's not instant punishment we get, but forgiveness and mercy. Every time we come to Jesus, we don't have to cower in fear that he will strike us. But as we turn to him, we know that he will embrace us and say, I forgive you. Friends, this is the promise for all those who are repentant who turn around and come to Jesus. And it's not just forgiveness he offers. He also offers us help for us to actually put off that sin. Did you know that? Let me read to you um, a favorite verse of mine. Oh, missed a lot of those. Hebrews 4, verse 14 to 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet... He did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Do you see what's going on in this passage? The call here is to come to Jesus for help, and this isn't just the initial repentance, coming to Jesus and trusting in Him for forgiveness. This is an everyday turning to Him for grace and help. It's not just once, but every single day of our lives. Repentance isn't a one-time thing. It's a lifestyle. It's every single day. We are called here, to, in verse 14, to hold firmly to the faith we profess. But also, as we keep doing that, we come to him for help to do that. He wants us to come to him, so not just so we can be saved from the punishment of sin, but so we can be saved for a life of radical holiness. Friends, we aren't just saved from punishment. We are saved for holiness. We need to understand that. And what a promise that Jesus Christ gives us. That he offers not just his forgiving grace, but also his transforming grace as well. Have a look at verse 16 again on the screen. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Let me ask you, when is our time of need? Well, it's every single day, isn't it? Every single day. We need Jesus. And he's saying to you today, whoever you are, no matter how much you're in sin, to come to me. And if you do, you will not only find forgiveness for your sins, you will receive his grace to help you live a life of radical holiness. Praise be to Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour, for what he offers. He doesn't leave us alone in this. He's here to help. His radical love, mercy and generosity is what enables us to live likewise, trusting in him. Friends, the gospel brings about a radical new church. A church that is radical in care, Radical in generosity and radical in holiness. And living like this, being a church like this, it really matters because a church like this, well, let me tell you, it brings Jesus Christ much glory, honor, and praise. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for scriptures. We thank you for challenging, confronting passages even like this. We thank you for the reminder today that sin is serious to you. That radical holiness really matters to you and help us to be reconvicted of that and to come to Jesus for help to live that out. We thank you for the reminder that radical generosity and care really matters to you as well. And once again, we ask for your help to live that out because by ourselves, there is no way we could be changed to do that. But we know that your Holy Spirit transforms hearts. And we ask this, not... For the sake of ourselves mainly, but for the sake of your glory as we live as your beautiful church. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Friends, I'd ask you to just take a minute to reflect now. We're going to spend a bit of time reflecting on what we've heard, and maybe God's convicting something, moving your heart towards repentance, or you need to ask for help. Yeah, spend a bit of time doing that now, a silent prayer in your heart, a bit of reflection.